All right, folks, we are here. It's meet. It is February 19th. We're in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. This is part two of that. And then we're going to wrap up today with a discussion about the historist view of the churches. And I'll explain that as we get to it. I have to admit, you guys are troopers hanging in through the hacking through Revelation. I mean, we are, I don't know how many weeks we've been at it, and we're only in chapter two, verses eight through 11. But it's your fault. You demanded it. We're doing it. And so on we go. Let's begin with a prayer and uh, go from there. Lord, we uh, thank you now. We seek you and uh, pray your spirit will be with us. Open our eyes and ears and hearts to the truth and let us know your will uh, in and through our studies, even if these studies aren't so directly applicable to us right now. Um, we're reading them and trying to understand what they mean um, and then apply them to our lives. We pray for those who uh, are seeking and seriously do want to know what is real and what is not. And uh, help us to grasp what is real and to get rid of what is not. Bless those who are having crises of faith, people who are disgruntled, people who are embittered, uh, people who are frustrated, people who are lost. And that's uh, all of us at some point in time or another, Lord. So we just pour our hearts out to you now and sit for a few minutes in reflection and pray you'll be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Stone which the builders rejected has become the 
For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His Show.
sweating already. Okay, I'm going to jump to the board really quick. Uh, this is extemporaneous, but I just, it just came to me, and I just feel like I, I just want to point it out. We just listened to uh, the words that I think answer so many questions about so many things, and I never really thought of it. Paul presents, if you live, if you, and that places it on us, if you live, and the choices according to the flesh, you will die. And we know that afterlife death occurs in the lake of fire. So Paul tells us, you will experience death, and it, it doesn't mean a death, I don't believe it means a death to everything. I believe it means a death of the things that we lived according to the flesh. You will die. But then he says, but if, and he doesn't say you work it out, you uh, do this, you do that, you, you live religiously, you do it. But he says, but if by the Spirit, by the Spirit's power, by the Spirit doing what the Spirit does within our flesh, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, of the body, so by the Spirit, the Spirit does it, you, again, it's in our hands, put to death the deeds of the body. What's the promise? You, it's an opposite to this, will live. And that is the opposite promise of those who go to the lake of fire and die. This is the promise of those who live according to the Spirit. It's a fantastic verse. And it lays it out for us when people say, oh, listen, it's, it's God who does everything. It's true by the Spirit. It's all done by the Spirit. But we put to death the deeds of the body. It's that joint relationship of him giving and us choosing. Him giving, us choosing. And I'm convinced by that. And I think this passage right here really emphasizes, answers those questions. So um, something that came to me while we were listening to that, and I just thought I'd share it with you really quick. Lee. Is it I share it with you really quickly or I share it with you really quick? It's Lee, isn't it? Like drive safe or drive safely? Safely, yeah. All right, last week we left off with Jesus. He was addressing the angel of the second church of the seven churches, Smyrna. And this is what we covered thus far in the address. Verse eight, and unto the angel of the church at Smyrna write, these things says the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of them, which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things, which thou shalt suffer. Behold, shall cast some of you into that you may be tried. And we talked a bit about the fact that God allows his children, the paradox, the irony, the difficulty sometimes that God allows his own children to suffer, that there was no promise here for Smyrna for them to escape. 
and uh, that Jesus spoke in terms of shall, not you could, or it's possible that you shall suffer, you shall suffer this, you shall suffer that. So this leaves us with the rest of verse 10 where Jesus continues and says, and you shall have tribulation 10 days. And be thou faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. That's heavy. So let's cover these three remaining points uh, before we move to his words to the church at Pergamos, the third church of the seven. And you shall have tribulation 10 days. And uh, so when things like, especially in the book of Revelation, come up and say 10 days, we have a decision to make. Uh, how are we going to take that, especially in the book of Revelation? So let's talk about it. The proposals on how to understand 10 days are pretty much in, this ca- in these categories. First, there's the option of viewing them literally. So Jesus, in the Revelation to John, for the angel of the, Smyr- uh, church, of Sm- the, angel of the church at Smyrna, he says 10 days, uh, and so he meant 10 days, 10 24-hour periods. I personally think that when you read scripture, the first way to start is the most literal, direct meaning. So to read it and try to think, could this be possible? 10 literal days, right? And while we know that several times Jesus has already said in the Revelation, the time is short, the time is at hand. We know time is of the essence, right? So before things happen that are described in this book, um, We know that if John was a prisoner on Patmos and writing this revelation, he had to finish writing the rest of it quickly. He had to quickly copy it. He had to quickly get it back out to the churches in Asia Minor before those 10 days were up. So it's foolish for us to say 10 days is literal. I mean, it just, what did not mean 10 literal days? Even though the most literal application is usually the best, unless there's evidence that would go against the literal uh, translation and literal doesn't work. So I vote against the literal interpretation here of 10 days. I don't think it means that. So there's the literal. And there are biblical literalists who say when it says this, it means this. And they're hard to deal with. We've had a few sometimes show up in campus and they are, they're also known sometimes as King James onlyists and they will use the literal application on everything, and they're pretty dogmatic, but in this case, I don't see it being literally 10 days. So then there's the figurative application of it, and this is where many scholars say 10 days is representative of 10 years, all right? So historicists especially, the people who view the book of Revelation from a historicist position, uh, insist that around the time of a man named Diocletian, He was a Roman emperor that Diocletian tormented the Christian saints exactly 10 years. And so they take this time to the church of Smyrna and they say, this 10 days Jesus is talking about is 10 years. And history shows us Diocletian actually tortured Christians for 10 years straight during that period. Could be, could be Diocletian came well later after this could have been written, but it could be. Then there is the view I think is best, and it's the representational view, and we get the representational view by looking at the rest of Scripture. How is 10 days used in the rest of the Bible? 
when we see how it's used in the rest of the Bible, we might say, well, that's what it means here in Revelation. So let me give you some examples. In Genesis 31, 7, and then in verse 41, we read, thou hast changed my wages 10 times. Okay, now if you're a biblical literalist, you'll say, that means 10 times. Uh, Biblical literalists stand by that, I don't think so. Instead of what's being said is, this is a frequency. 10 represents a frequency or of an occurrence or an abundance of times. So the representational approach to 10 days is says 10 means a lot. Okay, we're gonna see that more and more as we read Revelation. For instance, a thousand is used for a lot by the Jews. It's used by them in the Old Testament. God is a God of cows on a thousand hills. This is a paraphrase. It means a lot of hills. It doesn't mean he's not the God of a thousand and one hills. It just means a lot, okay? So what's happened is we get further into Revelation, we're gonna come to a thousand years and people are gonna say a thousand years. That's what it means. And it just means a lot. And sometimes it means the full amount. God is the God of all the hills. That's what a thousand represents. So... To become a biblical literalist, you really have, you really put yourself out there because so many things cannot be taken and they weren't meant to be taken literally. Let me give you another one. Numbers 14, 21 says, those men, quote, those men have tempted me now 10 times. Is that what it meant? Biblical literalists, that's what it means. Someone else says that's representational. Again, I read it. They have frequently and grievously tempted and sinned against me is what the writer's saying. Nehemiah 4, 12 The Jews that dwelt by them came and said unto us 10 times, and then Job 19.3 says, these 10 times you have reproached me. Did they reproach Job 10 times? Again, it's representational frequently. It was just the Jews' way of saying it. Finally, if you go to Daniel 1.20, it says, in all matters of wisdom, he found them 10 times better than the magicians. Now, was Daniel really 10 times better than the magicians in a quantitative sense? No. Daniel was just much more better, more better. He was much more better than the magicians. 10, again, is representational. So when we read the book of Revelation and Jesus says 10 days, it's representational. It means you are going to frequently be in trials and tribulations. And that's how I would, I would uh, uh, interpret it to you. Then he comes to the biggie. These biggies really blow my mind. And be thou faithful unto death. It's the next one he tells the uh, believers at um, Smyrna. It's a tall order. What would you do if Jesus came and he gave you a revelation and he said, I want you to be faithful unto death? It was direct. I mean, he's standing on the end of your bed and he says, I want you to be faithful to death, right? Uh, it's a tall order. I don't believe it can be reasonably be, be made of human beings for God to say, I want you to be faithful, faithful, full of faith unto death unless the Holy Spirit is present to move us through that. It is not our nature to be faithful unto death, but the Holy Spirit in us can bring us through to be faithful unto death. And so, he, it's God who grants us our peace and intestinal fortitude and, and courage during those times. 
initially, this is one of the quizzical things, even the difficult things I find in reading the book of Revelation. It's one of the things I just hesitated to do it. And what I mean by this is Jesus is telling, in, in the least, the angel of Smyrna, and more probably all the believers of Smyrna, that they need to be frequent, they need to be patient in frequent sufferings, in imprisonments, and they need to be faithful even unto death. And if, if, if they are, they'll receive a crown of life. It's all predicated on if. And though these little things, they really are hard when you read them in scripture, especially if you have come, come to believe that Jesus saved us by, our, by his grace through our faith and that's it, it's just done. Now he comes around in Revelation and says, if you are faithful, I will give you a crown of life. Faithful to what, Jesus? Faithful unto death. So it's a tall order. However, I think that some of us, I think I could say with a little bit of assurance, I could be faithful unto death if Jesus said be faithful unto physical death as long as it was quick. Uh, but if I was gonna be tortured, I'm not sure I could be. It would have to be him in me to do that. I'd have to be faithful to him unto death to be able to get through what he's requiring, you see? So this being said, I can't help but wonder if during these tumultuous years prior to the end and the winding up of all things, that the saints were doubly empowered with the Holy Spirit to be able to overcome these things that were placed upon them. Um, and, and they were in no danger of failure if they were faithful to him, faithful to him. And that has to be remembered when we read these things or else it's gonna seem like, hey, I've gotta uh, soldier this through and be able to do it so I can get my crown and I just don't think that's contextually sound. But what about now? I mean, we're here and it's 2017 and we're reading the scripture. Gotta believe the same. I tend to think in our day and age, the passage means something different than suffering at the hands of persecutors, like maybe they do in North Korea or other places. Uh, but I tend to think the application in our day is seen, be thou faithful, full of faith in me, either and or as you die to your will, to that death, to your flesh, and or as you die physically and leave this mortal world. Be faithful, be faithful to me, look to me, abide in me, through either of or both of these physical deaths and you will receive a crown. I think the application seems to be there for us. In my estimation, this is the most reasonable way to understand what is being said to the believers at Smyrna and then to ourselves today. A good number of Christians, because of their dating of Revelation and their futurist ideas that these words uh, were to a for a different dating, they will say that the angel at Smyrna was Polycarp. We talked about that last week. Polycarp was born in 70 AD, and he died in 155 AD. So futurists will say the angel of Smyrna was Polycarp, and admittedly, the contents of verse 10 in light of Polycarp seem to fit. They, they do seem to describe someone who, is, who Jesus would say to the angel of Smyrna, be faithful unto death, and it be Polycarp that he's talking to. But it's, the interesting thing about us as humans is we are able to compartmentalize information in order to make it work through all sorts of crazy ways 
uh, Spinoza said, as we've talked about, nature abhors a vacuum. And if we have a vacuum in our lives, we will fill it with stuff to make it make sense. And so we do that when it comes to coming up with what these churches represent. In fact, when it comes to being faithful unto death, they say, according to tradition, Polycarp was said, renounce Christ right now. Don't be faithful, but renounce Christ and you'll live. And he said, 86 years I have served him and he never did me wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? End quote. When the futurists read that quote about the, the person in Smyrna who oversaw the church being put to death, they automatically assign that period of time to the, uh, the church at Smyrna. And uh, he was consumed in flames after saying that. Um, so I can't help but read and see application to the end of the age then. I can't help but see there was an application to Polycarp at 155. I can't help but see application to Christians who have died over the course of history uh, ever since. And I can't help but see application of Jesus' words to the believers at Smyrna. To us today, when we are supposed to die, as we just said on the board, uh, by the Spirit, we put to death the deeds of the body, we shall live uh, if we do that faithfully. So I see it having application in every one of the views that that are out there on on how to see the book of Revelation. Uh, The word is the living word. So it's tough to... We have all tried to compartmentalize it. And while I'm still a preterist, I I do believe it has application to us today. Um, Finally, not fearing that we will suffer, being cast into prison, being tried, tribulation for 10 days, and being faithful unto death, Jesus finally adds, and I will give you a crown of life. Um, As a cross-reference, we see in James, we've studied this, James 1.12, it said, blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he or she is tried, she shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. So we have crown of life used in James. Blessed are those who endure trials and temptation. For when you have endured, uh, you will receive the crown of life. And now here to Smyrna, he's saying, if you, essentially we could size all that up, endure temptation, endure these trials that are placed before you, you will receive the crown of life. That helps us to see it's probably not, Jesus isn't saying, if you do this, 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 and this, you will. It's probably Jesus' way of saying, prophetically, this stuff's gonna happen to you. Hang on, you'll receive the crown of life by seeing it through, and I'm gonna see you through. Uh, And the reward for enduring temptation is the crown, a crown, excuse me, a crown of life. I I, I tend to uh, slip back and forth between the material and the spiritual when I study scripture, and um, sometimes I can't help but slip back into the concrete when I'm reading Revelation, and I think, look it, if I'm gonna get a crown to wear on my head, for suffering imprisonment and death and constant trials, that's not appealing to me. I'm not a hat wearer, really, and I don't want to wear a crown. It doesn't, it doesn't produce anything in me that says, hey, you should seek for this. So when you start by that, you might say, well, maybe crown means something different. And of course it does. So we go to Scripture. Peter, the apostle, wrote in 1 Peter 5, 4, 
And when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory. So Jesus to Smyrna says, I'll give you a crown of life. It, it, Peter says that when Jesus appears, he's gonna give a crown of glory. So we have glory and life there. You go to 1 Corinthians 9, 25, and Paul says, and every man that strives for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. So we know that the crown is one of glory. We know it's one of life. We know that it is incorruptible. And then Timothy says, henceforth, or Second Timothy, Paul says, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. So the crown symbolically represents you will be given righteousness, glory, life, and, uh, and it will be incorruptible. The, they, it will not change into something that will fall apart. If you endure faithful, faithful does not mean two rules. Faithful means full of faith to the king. And then from all these references, we can see not a literal crown. It's a spiritual blessing that is uh, typified by a crown that we wear. And I think that's inviting, something that people would be willing to suffer for, maybe just out of love for Christ, but also knowing that he is going to reward them for it. And then these words to the church at Smyrna end with, and we've covered these, so I'm not gonna cover them. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. He that overcome us shall not be hurt in the second death. And we've covered at length uh, all of that weeks ago with all the churches. And so we come to church number three, and that is Pergamos, the third church of seven. Now, before we get to Pergamos, a slight detour. And the detour will include, I touched on this, but I think it's important, and I'm gonna do a little bit more so that you can understand it, because this approach is huge for people who study the book of Revelation. And what they do is they say, each of these churches has a name that has meaning. And it represents an age uh, or period of time that the church is, has gone through historically. That's why it's the historists, historically. Okay? So what the, what the suggestion is, as we read about the seven churches, is that each one has a name that has a specific meaning and that meaning of that name of that church corresponds to an age of church history and what was going on during the church history. The thing about it is, is you're gonna see that the meaning stops about right here, and then it picks it up again right here in terms of how we translate these uh, church names. And so to me, it does not hold water. It's a really fascinating approach because when it's taught by a really good teacher, you will be convinced, and they could be right, but you're gonna be convinced, wow, what is happening in Revelation is when, when the church at Ephesus is described, Ephesus means this, and this happened during this age, and historically what God is doing through Revelation is he's moving us through the history of his church until we get to the end. And that's how the historicist movement works. So I wanna talk to you about each of these 
churches and their names and about the age that it's supposed to represent because it plays so well into the futurist view and to the historicist view of what the book's about. All right. <clears throat> Ephesus, we've covered it. It's believed to represent the apostolic church. That would be from about 33 CE, CE's Christian era, I'm used to saying 80, 33 CE till about 100. That's about 70 years. Ephesus, 70 years. Some have suggested the name Ephesus comes from the Latin word apis, Ephesus apis, they believe it. And apis means a bee. So what they say is, the definition, this definition is rejected by scholars, but they have found a lot of coins and artifacts at Ephesus that have bees on them. So the scholars say no way could Ephesus mean bee from Apis, but it could. And those who believe it does come from the bee will say the apostolic church, giving it its meaning from 30 to 100, they were hard workers. Now, we live in the beehive state. Those of you at home, we're in Utah. It's called the beehive state. And there's beehives everywhere. And that was brought on by the LDS when they came out west. They took it from the Masons. It's all Masonically driven. The busy bee, the network, the bees, and everything else. Well, apparently, it's either from Apis or it's from a Hittite name, Apasa. And Apasa means going all the way back. Okay. So whichever one you want to believe it to be, Ephesus means a bee, or it means going all the way back, it will help you decide how to describe the apostolic age of the church from 30 to 100. So it's a bee, or it's a uh, going back. Most scholars embrace going back. So what they say is Ephesus historically represents going back all the way to the nascent Christian church that Jesus established. And they say, you see how God works? He's given us Ephesus. He's given us, uh, this is the first church that's discussed. This would co correspond with the first one who receives a revelation in, uh, 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 from Christ. And it means going all the way back to the nascent church. And when people hear that, boom, I am a historicist. I'm a futurist. Okay, now this book's starting to make sense. Okay, and it does make good sense here. I, I admit, I was, when I was at Calvary Chapel, I really bought into that because it made so much sense. <clears throat> uh, so those are, the, those are the examples of Ephesus. Nevertheless, because the believers at Ephesus were commanded, or excuse me, they were commended for testing the apostles. They got, Jesus said to them, listen, because you have tested the works of those who call themselves apostles and you found them wanting, I'm paraphrasing, you've done a good job. So what they're saying is, this has to have been the apostolic church and it, Ephesus could only represent that because we don't have apostles anymore. That's how they would describe that. And as Christians, we would say, yeah, we get that. That would make sense. And so that's a feather in the cap for the Ephesus and what it represents. However, if you're in Utah, again, sorry, but they have 12 living apostles. 
And so we would have to take the idealist view and say Ephesus doesn't just represent the first apostolic church, it represents all churches where apostles will come up and you are, your job is to test to see if they're true apostles. So the, the historicist view kind of falls apart a little bit when we see that there's application to what Jesus said to them in our day and age, all right? So that being said, we see a present application of Ephesus as well as an early church. Uh, the second church, Smyrna, which we are just finishing talking about. It's believed to represent a period from 100 to 300 CE. I gotta get used to doing that. I'm so used to saying the AD. All right, and Christian era, CE Christian era. So this is the period when in church history, they say the worst tribulation has ever been heaped upon Christians. All right, those 200 years. Jesus' words to the church at Smyrna fit that. You're gonna suffer, you're gonna see tribulation 10 days, uh, you're gonna be imprisoned, be faithful unto death. And so right now we're really cruising along with the historicist view. These names of these churches are making a lot of sense. Um, Diocletian, between 303 and 313 AD, he tortured Christians for 10 years straight. So they're able to take what was said in Smyrna as the 10 days, say this fits Diocletian, and so boom, we've nailed the dates again. Having just studied Smyrna, we've seen that Jesus does commend them, and he pretty much says, you're going to suffer. Uh, so unfortunately, the strict parameters fail when we step back and look at the whole of Christian history. Because while there was suffering there, there was tremendous suffering beyond. I mean, at the hands of the Catholics and the Protestants at the Protestant Reformation, there was tremendous suffering of the faithful. Uh, and if you read about the, uh, not tra Trail of Blood, if you read for about um, the Anabaptists and their plight, under the hands of religion, uh, what they did to them, uh, just unbelievable. So we see an exception, and all I'm trying to do is show that while it does make sense that Smyrna does represent suffering, that the exception would be Christians have always suffered, and it's sometimes in, in church history, greatly by the thousands according to death. So what that allows us to do is say, yeah, there may be truth to the historicist view, but there's also truth to the futurist view and the idealist view, et cetera, et cetera. It's opening us up to not be so, we gotta stick by this, all right? And you know from last week that Smyrna means myrrh, and we dedicated it to Myrna, and uh, uh, Smyrna, Myrna. All right, third, and we, Myrna understands suffering, having been married to Grant all these years. Ba -da -ba! All right. Uh, third church, Pergamos, all right. Uh, and the guest at date, 323 to 580. Oh, sorry for my inconsistent stuff. All right. Pergamos means uh, heightened or elevated. It comes from the uh, Latin word pergos. It's not purge, but pergos. And again, it really makes sense, and that's why I said the first three churches here 
they really can be supported by the historicist view. Pergamos makes sense because if Smyrna was brutally persecuted between 100 and 300, and then suddenly what happens in 300, 330, 320, what happens? Well, this guy named Constantine comes up and he says, listen, I had a vision in the clouds and I can win wars if I adopt the name of Jesus. And so I'm gonna make the entire state religion Christian. And so the church was elevated. And so then people who say Pergamos means elevated, they say, aha, now we have the parameters for the dates of what Jesus was saying, right? Admittedly, these interpretations have a real tendency to, to grip. The problems, however, is, as we've pointed out, these dates are so fluid that almost every historicist differs on them. When we start getting this way, historicists differ on the meaning of these names. So what we have is some real consistency right here and people hear that and by the time they have bought into it by here, they just keep buying into the rest of it, but it doesn't hold water as we're gonna see. So that's one of the problems. There are dozens of dates and definitions for the historicist view. They are often very different. The, description, the descriptions cannot be limited only to the times that they describe. And in many cases, they don't work. So, for instance, when it comes to the church being elevated, I tend to see evangelicalism being elevated in church history. I see it a, a period of time uh, when evangelicalism was, was highly elevated in the United States. If you look at the British Isles, the Church of England, the Church of England was highly elevated. You look for a thousand years, the Catholic Church was highly elevated. And so uh, I'm not sure it just fits that window of time from 323 to 580. To me, the Catholic Church was far more elevated before. Now, if Jesus is just talking about real believers, his body being elevated, maybe that's, the, maybe that's how we can understand it. So in Smyrna, the Christians were being killed, but based on Pergamos, the next logical period, Christians are now being elevated. And you know, if we're gonna pick, when it comes to surviving in a church, which one is more of a curse to survival? Being tried? or being elevated. It's being tried. Trial gets us stronger, and it causes us to cry out to God. The elevated church, they were lifted up. They had the approval of man. They didn't have any difficulties internally in terms of persecution because they were the state religion. And so in short, in that period of Pergamos, a person had to be a Christian in order to hold a position of authority uh, in the government, they, ha they didn't have the full rights of a merchant. They didn't have the full rights of a landowner unless you were a Christian. So what happened around that time is everybody started becoming a Christian. And it would be like if we went down to, I don't know, a Sugar House or something, and we just got everybody who was a non-believer and said, we can give you all jobs, we can make you all responsible citizens, uh, and you can have a stature in the community, just come and call yourself Christians from campus. But can you imagine what the after hours activities would be like in this place? So that was what happened with Constantine. Everybody joined just so that they could have social value and status, but the church was just corrupted. So 
they were deleterious to the faith. And gotta point out, this is why I am personally adamant against mixture of church and state today. Because when we do that, we will have the same effect of bringing non-believers in. And we will bring in so that they can ride on the coattails of what Christianity is about and not really be sold out for the faith. That's the only reason, really. I mean, if Jesus were really on the throne in the White House, I would be all for it. But it's the same thing that we've had the problem with in Constantine's. Bottom line, the church period known as Pergamos as some was filled with non-believers and opportunists. Next week, we are going to go through our verse by verse of the Lord's words to Pergamos so we can understand. Uh, but let's go to uh, the next one, and that is Thyatira. So the period of the prophetic church at Thyatira is considered by some, get this, make sure I get this right, 538 A.D., to 1798 A.D. Now this is often, this is a generally accepted historicist view of what Jesus is saying to the church historic period between 534 A.D. and uh, 1789, 89, not 98, my dyslexia, 89. Okay, so you historians out there, what happened? What was going on? Why do they assign Thyatira and what Jesus says to Thyatira to these dates? The first has to do with what's called the Justinian Code. Um, It was created by Emperor Justinian, and it was put in place in 534 AD. And in large part, this decree made it a crime to not be a Trinitarian. And what it did was it caused the churches to become police forces in ensuring doctrinal purity. So around 534, the Justinian Code was used by the papacy to destroy all non-Trinitarian believers, kill them. Uh, there was a group of people called the Ostrogoths, wiped out in 538 AD due to the Justinian Code put in place against non-Trinitarians. It's believed that this marked the beginning, 538, of what is called by some the reign of church and state terror. Those years were filled with the church. Now, remember what happened before at Pergamos, we had apparently people flowing into the faith because it was something that you could do to get a status, a higher status in, in society. Now that has, the church has been filled with that and suddenly those people who filled it are sitting in uh, seats of government and they are making decisions in the name of Christ. And guess what they say? The Justinian Code is put into effect. We're gonna start wiping out non-Trinitarians. And so it was a period of time when the church and state gathered together and it became a terror to the world. And apparently, Jesus' words to Thyatira, which we'll study when we get to it, was all about this period. Okay, and we'll see how that fits when we get to it. What ended the terror of church and state and when? Well, you got the win up on the board. Historicists claim that the terror ended when General Berthier, uh, under the command of Napoleon, put an end to it during the French Revolution. He came forward and in 1798, that's when it happened, Napoleon said no more 
of the church and state terror, we are not gonna put up with it anymore. We're done with it, and there was a revolt, and so no more putting to death over the cause of the Trinity uh, in 1798. No religious observances were allowed prior to that if they weren't done in the name of the Trinity. And relentless violence was used. So the presence of that Justinian Code from 534 AD up to 1789 tells us how blessed we are to not be living under that as believers. Not that we're not uh, Trinitarians. Many believers are. But just the freedom to be able to believe what you're gonna believe was totally stripped during that church period. So when people defend organized religion and it's mixing with political power, all you gotta do is go back in history and look what has constantly happened and you can say, okay, we don't really have a precedent, precedent for this, right? Really quick history, I have to do this because it might be interesting to you, I won't spend much time. The Greeks were the first one when it came to laws like the Justinian Code to create juries. The Greeks, they said in a, in a democracy, the Greeks believed in democracy, we are going to open up every trial to the public. So th apparently they had one trial where 6,000 people came to decide the verdict. That's how the jury began. After they saw that it was just untenable to do that, uh, the refreshments were killing them, just kidding. They said, okay, 101, 501, 1,001 people can be in uh, the jury of somebody who's being tried. And what they would say is, you can have representatives and everybody gets to vote who's being tried and who is a trying, the accused and the prosecutors, can say what they think needs to be done and all the people who are in the jury get to vote on what happens. So that's the beginning of it, right? And the Romans, they borrowed that jury system, like the one in ancient Greece. At Greece, the uh, Hellenistic culture came before and the Romans also acknowledged that the law has to change, so they were constantly amending and changing their laws. Well, they came up with 12 tables, they call them, which were the earliest written codes of law around 450 B, uh, before Christ. 450 years before Christ, they had these 12 tables. And they were implemented during the Roman occupation of England, and that's how everything was run. And these systems put compensation for victims, and, but they started to grow and got very complex, and they got so complex that men started to become experts in how to understand them, and this is where we get our first lawyers. So when you read about lawyers in the uh, New Testament, it's not really about that type of lawyer. Those are really scribes that were lawyers for the law of God, but Lawyers really got their place when the, uh, the 12 tablets grew so big, no one knew how to really manage them, and so men started to become proficient and experts in all those written laws. About a 1,000 years after the 12 tables were written, the Roman emperor Justinian, he said, these laws need to be simplified down. So now we enter into 534 uh, AD CE. Justinian comes and said, we need to do something with all these laws and he creates the Justinian Code. And uh, it focused on civil law, and it became the basis for future European laws, this Justinian Code. And it helped to develop our, our modern ideas of justice. And in fact, the word 
Justinian is where we get justice from. That's why we call it justice. It's from Justinian. So take all that and jump way out to the French Revolution, 1789. Napoleon, the French, they are sick to death of laws that are doing to them what they have lived under. And so they come up with the French Civil Code and they completed it in 1804 and it spread throughout Napoleon's empire. It was well-liked, it was easy to understand. And between these dates of 538 and 1790, uh, we had that uh, reigning of the uh, uh, Justinian law. So really quickly, uh, this was so fascinating. This is why I had to share it. Rome had imposed the Justinian law upon their dominance over England. Well, when they pulled out of England in 410 CE, they left England to decide how to try people by themselves. So guess what the English came up with? They said, we are going to try people through ordeals. In fact, we are going to leave it in God's hands to make the decision on how justice should be meted out. We will start with a trial by ordeal. We're gonna implement this at campus. A trial by combat and a trial by oath helping. Those are the three trials that England came up with to decide if somebody was guilty of something or not. Uh, the trial by ordeal was commonly done a trial by fire or a trial by water. And they were equally as brutal. For instance, what they would do on the trial by water is they would take a stone and they'd put it in the bottom of a boiling cup, a boiling cauldron, and they would drop it in there and they'd say to the one who's accused, get it and let's see how well your arm heals. That's the trial by ordeal. Because God will heal you if you're innocent and he won't heal you if you're not. And if you're not, we're going to put you to death anyway. I would have been on a Neosporin, uh, anyway. So, and then the trial by fire is you walk across hot rocks or you have fire applied to your body. And if the wounds heal after a certain time, we know God is there on your side. And if they don't, well, then you're guilty. Trial by combat was a popular way of determining the guilt or innocence of parties. Essentially, they would fight it out. And it was expected for the one who was innocent to prevail. And typically, the, the one who knew how to fight would prevail. But this was trial by combat. And finally, trial by oath was you just had to get somebody who would come and say they didn't steal the cow. And if the person came and said they didn't steal the cow, they would take their oath as uh, reliable. Now, you might say, well, that's easy. You just buy them off. But in that day, people were so afraid of God's justice that very rarely would they testify uh, wrongly for somebody who had done a crime. Or uh, So they would, uh, it, it essentially worked better for them than anything else. Uh, most simple and after invading England in 1066, William the Conqueror arranged new laws for England, and uh, so they got away from all that. And um, I can go on and on, but the study of law is fascinating, but let's get back to Thyatira. The name Thyatira is interesting because from everywhere I looked, it means the castle of Tyra. <laughs> and I'm serious, I can't find any legitimate definition and so we have three really good definitions here. And then finally, we have a breakdown in the historicist view of the church's names meaning something because the castle of Tyra, I mean, you could extrapolate that and come up with a fiction that says, well, 
the uh, church that was reigning for those period of time were like a castle on a hill reigning, and that's how you do it. Uh, you create things that way, but there's really no name. So that it starts to break down for me in terms of its validity. Uh, I read one, though, what happens to the historicists create names, and I just read a very, very respected uh, uh, historicist who said Thyatira means sacrifice of contrition. There is no evidence for that anywhere. I don't know where he got that, and, but we would call that period the Dark Ages, Thyatira. That's simply how we would put it. Fifth Church, Sardis. 1400 to 1844. Uh, let's see. And you can start to see that we have overlap because this was 1798. And so we have an overlap between these and historicists will say many of the periods will overlap with each other. Uh, that's how they would defend it. And uh, what does it mean? What does Sardis mean? No one knows. So again, we have a problem with the name conveying uh, Sardis is, uh, it really throws a grenade in the camp of the historicists. But as a result, they again come up and they create names for it. And one uh, that I read that's popular is that which remains. Okay? This is the name that they have assigned to Sardis. Uh, I'm just going to put the acronym that which remains. Uh, but there's no evidence it means that. But it makes sense that after this period, that that which remains would be the next period that Jesus describes. And so Thyatira is often called that. If you ever hear someone say, well, Thyatira, is that means that which remains to say, that's just not true. It's just, it's just made up so that we can make it seem true. Um, very convenient. Of course, the period of history labeled Sardis saw dramatic change in civilization and government and culture, powerful reformation period, and this is when preachers like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Knox uh, sent spiritual and political earthquakes throughout the Western civilization. And so when people read Jesus' words to uh, Sardis, they can say, this is really describing that period. And when we get to Sardis again, we'll, um, we'll talk about it. Here's the one thing. I would simply point out that the very same mistakes that were made in the Pergamos period were made during the Sardis period, the Reformational age. And corruption in the church was created through similar political alliances. This is not me just making this up. If you study it, you'll see it. It didn't take very long for the Protestants seeking to get their uh, protesting against the Catholics underway to do the exact same thing the Catholics did a thousand years before and make alliances with political leaders. And before long, the churches of the Reformation were as cruel, as cruel to their detractors as the Roman, uh, Roman church had been uh, during the Inquisition and in previous persecutions. And so Pergamos really could go all the way out to uh, four, eight, uh, 1844 as far as, and we start, you're starting to see it break down. We're getting, it's getting messy now. And, uh, but we have another evidence that when men allow this mixture to begin, it just lends to a decrease in the true uh, praxis of the faith, and that is love and long-suffering and patience and kindness and everything. We're justifying murders. We are justifying torturing people. 
And I know it sounds like, God, you talk so emphatically about it, but that, that's important. They have the Bible. They have the writings of Jesus right there. And they justified putting people to death because they didn't agree with this passage or that. That's insanity. But what gave them the power to do it was their alliances politically. And so the lesson ought to be no political alliances. So uh, we'll talk about Sardis when we get to it. La two more churches quickly, Church of Philadelphia, 1844 to 1900s. I should put it just because people sometimes uh, screenshot this. It's like you remember where the absent-minded professor, what did I say? 1844, 1900s, thank you. 1844, 1900s. Now here, we see the names starting to pick up again. A little bit, right? Because after we had this period, we had the Church of Philadelphia, and we know that philos, uh, of course, means friendly, fond of, uh, Delphia, uh, brotherly love, city of brotherly love, and uh, the city, and it was supposed to be a period of great revival, and it was a period of great revival. You can read about the burned over districts. You can read about all that happened when we get to Philadelphia, we'll talk about it. And finally, we go from the 1990s, it's interesting, this is how the historicists are primarily talking about it, from the 1900s to present. So if you're 117 years old, you have lived through the entire period of Laodicea. And it, the name at first glance is nothing but a town. There were some hot springs, apparently they're still there in Laodicea, and so people, would, people have come to say it means lukewarm. That again is not true. It, Laodicea does not mean lukewarm in Greek. It's just what they've said, and then they have applied lukewarm to our day. Does it fit? Yeah, but it's probably fit throughout all the church history. Uh, the closest we get to an actual meaning is laos, means people, and dikeia means decide. And so the people speak, the people decide, is another way that uh, his, historicists use it, and that makes sense, because what it says is the people stop caring what the word of God says, and they start deciding for themselves what to believe. I have to admit that the application of Laodicea does play well with me, and I think it does speak well to the historicist claims of, of the church meaning something, and uh, so that's out till right now. Uh, right now. The Laodiceans trust in their ability over the ability of God, and of course, this is not only apparent here in this age, but it's been apparent through all church ages if we look back, and, and that's kind of the thing. So I would wrap this up right now by saying I think almost every single one of those church periods has application to us today. I think that they can be cross-checked and changed. I think there are, and I think historicists say that, there are some main things that occurred uh, through these periods, and that's what they're really focusing on. I think that may be true, but I don't think there's anything to all the names having meaning, and we're gonna get to Pergamos next week. Questions, comments. Adam Guyman, first on the scene. Wendy Jensen, please give Adam Guyman the phone. Not phone. The mic. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, my name's Adam Gaiman, and uh, a couple things I thought about is, one, uh, you mentioned about church and state, the separation, which I highly believe that that's something that does need to be uh, put into effect. And I know in Utah, living here my entire life, that the LDS church is one of the big dominant uh, churches, uh, corporations is what I call them. And uh, it's been stated before that, you know, you mentioned that Jesus was, uh, you know, if he was in the White House, it would be nice. But at the same time, Jesus himself has said that my kingdom is not of this world. And if they, if it was, my servants would fight. And so, you know, I don't really think that I will ever in my lifetime, and I don't highly believe that anyone in any of our lifetimes will actually ever see Jesus in the White House. He, he's not going to be a president of this country. That shocks because... me. That shocks me greatly. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Good point, Guyman. Good points. And to our sister Heidi. Well, I'm not up on my uh, on my history, but so where did the Catholic Church come in, and who kind of started that? Because you mentioned, uh, yeah, you mentioned a few, but they kind of. Well, the the historicist would say, this is when things came to power. They would say that that began here with Constantine and the creeds and slowly, but they would say about here. Uh, and then we go from this period of time to 1530 with the Reformation beginning. Okay. So we've got about a thousand years. So a thousand years. And then, and okay. And then it was kind of split off again. Yeah. Okay. Good question. Anybody else? Brother Joe on the couch. He's in the coveted chair. So my uh, question is in, in reference to the middle two periods, the very confused yeah. periods, um, does it make any mention of the rise of the uh, Muslims? No. Because that's pretty much, I mean, that's when they reigned and terrorized everybody and, and yeah. everything else. So I would think that if, if I was a historicist, I would have to uh, justify that. that. So what we'll do when we get to Thyatira and Sardis and we read the words of what Jesus says to them, I'll try to remember, do, is there anything in here that could be construed as a warning or as a prediction of the Muslim and their, uh, their uh, pogroms? Wendy, do you have something? No, oh. Okay. That's a good question, though. Yeah, very good. Because that's when Christians are really getting it, right? Anybody else? Way back, Wendy, way back. You're going to Grant, who's been torturing Smyrna for all these years. <laughs> now he's going to torture me. <laughs> pull out that rifle. Uh, I'm Grant Parker, and uh, there's been a lot of rhetoric about all of the... Uh, uh, immigrants that are coming in, the, the Mormon church and uh, the country is, uh, and Trump's against that until we vet them out and find out what the deal is, you know. But uh, I've heard 
over uh, a long period of time that the Muslim faith, maybe not professed in the Koran in writing, but they teach their young from the early age forward to hate and kill Christians and Jews. And now I don't know, uh, I've never heard anybody ever mention that about the Muslim faith, but if you, fa if you face them in the grocery store or somebody like that, they won't even look at you. I've tried it. Say hello and nod to them. They won't look at you. There's something there. And so... They're probably whether terrified. They, whether in, you know, <laughs> well, <laughs> when they see the cross, I know they are. But... Mm -hmm. uh, uh, anyway. I, don't, I, I'm not a, uh, I do not know Islam well at all, but I can say this. I don't believe that the Quran teaches for them to hate uh, Christians. They teach their children. I've, I've known several Muslim families. I've visited them. I've known them interpersonally. And they, I, I'm sure there are radicals, just like there's radicals in every faith. And so I think that a, a broad stroke uh, condemnation of them is probably improper. Yeah, well, any, anyway, I don't think it's... Uh uh, written or anything of that. It's, it's just like the, the Mormon church has their articles of faith, you know, like don't drink coffee and stuff like that, but yeah. something of that nature, what they teach them to hate Christians and Jews. Well, I'm sure there's I've factions that I've do. I've heard it for a long time. So. Yeah. Anybody else? Anyone have any viable information on that stuff? We, we uh, claim ignorance here. Uh, on the facts of that. Um, but thank you for that comment, Grant. Appreciate it. Let's pray. Lord, open our eyes. Help us, help our hearts to be soft and uh, to remember uh, that we are here to uh, bear the fruits of the Spirit, walk in faith, share with uh, people, even uh, people that might look at us with terror in their eyes. Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, love in the most genuine sense of the word. Uh, forgive so that we will be forgiven. Hard for us people of flesh, and you know that. But we pray your spirit to be with us. Help us to understand these things better and have application in our lives. We pray for those who are struggling in different areas of their life here. And we always uh, lift up and pray for our sister Heidi. We pray for her continued health and um, uh, she'll uh, have increased strength overcoming her anemia and uh, bless Liz and her back and the healing of that and then everybody else whose names aren't on this list that you'll help them and encourage them in this brief period this vapor we call life help us to exit here people of faith, people of love and to make our, uh, our week a week of Christianity dying to self, living to you. By the Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. For Christ is the end of, of a law for righteousness.